2, verse number 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. This evening, as we continue this study of Peter's sermon of the Sovereign Christ, we're going to take for our subject tonight those final words there in verse 36, both Lord and Christ. You'll recall that Peter, in verses 22 and 23, had reviewed the life and death of Jesus. He was revealing the life of Jesus to show that it was not a mere randomness or an accident that had occurred, but that all that had been done to Jesus was according to the redemptive plan of God. Now, in spite of the very fact that God had manifested himself through Christ by these miracles and the wonders and the signs in the midst of the Jews, we realize that the Jews turned Jesus over uh, to the hands of what could only be described as lawless men. Uh, these were indeed the Romans, and the Romans, of course, really ignored God's law. And, of course, Jesus was ultimately taken to the cross and was crucified. Now, we understand that even though the Jews and turned over Jesus and the Romans carried out this uh, execution, uh, we know that this was all being done according to the, def the definite and definite plan and foreknowledge of God. However, we need to be clear that this did not absolve them from the guilt. This did not absolve them from the blood that was shed on their hands. Even though this was done according to the definitive plan and the foreknowledge of God, uh, these individuals certainly did have the blood of Jesus on their hands. In verse 24, we saw that Peter uh, declared that although these human judges had ultimately put Jesus to death, there was something and someone higher uh, that had raised him from the dead. Of course, the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead. He did not stay in the tomb. And of course, we know that according to the prophecies of Messiah, that it would be impossible for the Messiah to remain under the power of death. It is this Christ, it is this Lord and Christ it is this same Jesus that Peter was speaking of when he declares in verse 36, both Lord and Christ. Now, as we look at these verses tonight, we'll see that Peter begins to refer back to the Old Testament prophecies. Uh, he, is, he, he is preaching these things and he is reminding the hearers that these things that have taken place are according to the prophecies of old. Uh, I've, I've broken this down into a few headings tonight, and I will tell you these headings are a little bit lengthy uh, to kind of break these, uh, these verses up. But beginning in verse 25 down through verse 31, Peter proclaims the proof from the Old Testament scriptures that the Messiah most, must both suffer death and be resurrected by the power of of God. Peter preaches the proof from the Old Testament that the Messiah must both suffer death and be resurrected by the power 
of God. Notice verse 25, David is, is spoken of here by Peter. He says, for David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Now what Peter is proclaiming here is he is proving that the death of Christ was part of God's redemptive plan. What he is quoting here is, of course, David in Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And what these verses are, they were, pre, they were prophesying about, was the very, uh, the, the very events that are taking place here. Now, you don't have to turn there, but here's what David said in Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. He says, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now, Psalm 16, in its immediate context, of course, David being the writer of Psalm 16, in that immediate context, of course, David is referring to himself and is referring to the hope of salvation that he has from death. It is clear that David, even in Psalm 16, expected that upon his death, he would behold or he would see the face of God. And so he could die. He could submit himself, of course, to the experience of death, knowing this promise, that God was not going to abandon his soul into hell. But understood something about this, that David understood something about God. God is the God of the living. And so David was confident that God would show him the way of life and would bring him into the fullness of joy, into the divine presence, even after death. Now, in verse 29 of that same passage that we, just, that we were looking at there in Acts 2, he says, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Now, although Psalm 16, in its immediate context, refers to David, Peter is now making it very clear in verse 29 of Acts 2 that the verses in Psalm 16 do not refer to David directly because David did, in fact, die. David did, in fact, did in fact experience corruption. And David, of course, Peter makes mention of this, that David does have a sepulcher that is with us unto this day. In other words, David did die. David was buried. So what is it that Peter is talking about? What was the psalmist David talking about then? He was referring himself to the greater son. David, in Psalm 16, was referring to the Messiah. Now, notice when we keep moving on here in verses 30 and 31 in Acts chapter number 2. Therefore, being a prophet, 
And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. David is being spoken of here by Peter. Peter is saying that what David was talking about was Jesus Christ himself. The psalmist David, when he penned those words in Psalm 16, was speaking prophetically. He was speaking about his own descendant. He was speaking about the Christ, the Messiah, who would ultimately be seated on the throne of David. In other words, what Peter was proclaiming, Psalm 16, and its context was truly all about, it was a prophecy regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter is pulling back the Old Testament scriptures in order to prove that the Jesus that these Jews and these Romans have crucified was the promised Messiah that David had spoken of even there in Psalm 16. So Peter is proving from the Old Testament scriptures that the Messiah must both suffer death and be resurrected by the power of God. Why must those things be so? Because the word of God declared that it would be so. The scriptures were being fulfilled, and they were being fulfilled here when Jesus himself came. Now, beginning there in verse 32, or verse 31, it says, He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. David is being referred to again by Peter in verse 31, saying, David, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. So now we see the difference between those. Jesus did in fact die, but Jesus did not stay in the grave. He did raise from the dead and his soul did not see, it was not left in hell and he did not see that corruption. So Peter very clearly and definitively stating that this Jesus who is both Lord and Christ, was promised and prophesied by David himself in Psalm 16. This leads us to our second heading tonight, which Peter declares that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has been given dominion as Lord over all God's creation. Verses 32 through 36, Peter declares that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has been given dominion as Lord over all God's creation. Now, knowing what we've seen in the previous verses, notice Peter refers to this Jesus, this fulfillment of what David said in Psalm 16, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. We are all witnesses. This resurrection of Christ or the resurrection of this Messiah was foreseen, it was foretold by the psalmist David. Peter here is now saying, we as the apostles, we are confirming what David prophesied about. Why do we know that? Because we saw it. We are eyewitnesses of the very fact that Jesus did in fact live, Jesus did in fact die, and he did in fact raise from the grave. We have seen him. We can confirm that what David said about this Messiah and the resurrection, it is indeed true. 
verse 33, therefore, Peter's giving us this, this great theological lesson here. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted. Now, what Peter is talking about here is he is, he is giving the exact location of this Messiah at that very moment. He says this Jesus that has been raised up is now at the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. Jesus had not only been raised from the dead, but he's been exalted to the right hand of God. And it is from that exalted position he has poured out, or the Spirit of God has been poured out upon his people, as we saw last week, that was part of the prophecy in Joel 2.28 about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So what Peter here is doing is Peter is confirming all of this fulfillment. He's confirming what David had said is indeed the truth. He has, he has raised from the dead. He has been exalted. Now go, notice he goes back to David, verse 34. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. So Peter here is not just randomly giving these words. This is another quote. He is quoting directly from Psalm 110, verse 1. And here's what Psalm 110 verse 1 says. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. This is to show that the exaltation of Christ was also part of the prophetic scripture. The Lord God had said to David's Lord, who is David's Lord? David's Lord is Christ the Messiah, that he should sit at God's right hand until all of his enemies were subdued. What is the conclusion? If Peter was declaring, even in his day, that Jesus Christ was enthroned, was exalted at the right hand of God the Father, where is Jesus Christ today? Jesus Christ is in that exact same location. He is enthroned and exalted at the right hand of God the Father and is exercising even now his reign and his rule. Revelation 3, 21 says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. The beauty, brethren, of these passages, of what Peter is proclaiming and what he is boldly standing upon, he is standing upon the authority of, with the expectation and the confidence that the word of God is being fulfilled. And you and I should be standing on that same sort of confidence. That when we proclaim the word, we are not proclaiming some sort of philosophy or some sort of expectation, but we are confidently proclaiming that which God has declared would be so. Remember, everything that Peter said was based upon fact. Peter was declaring that which was so, that this was all according to the redemptive plan of God. 
every aspect of this, God had his hand in it and in his sovereignty. And that brings us back to 36, where we gave as our starting point. Therefore, now he says that, of course, with the assurance of everything he said prior to that. Now we take all of that and we come to a bit of a conclusion. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly or with certainty, with confidence, without doubting that God hath made that same Jesus. God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, what Peter is saying here is the very heart. It is the very heartbeat of the gospel. It is the very heartbeat of the reality that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, is exalted at the right hand of God, and has been made both Lord and Christ. His Messiahship means lordship. To be the Messiah also makes him the Lord. Jesus, having been exalted to the right hand of the Father, is exercising that reign now at the right hand of God as Lord and King. This very fulfillment of Jesus as the Messiah is the very lordship that we often hear. Brethren, the lordship of Christ was a foundational doctrine of the primitive Christian church. Today, it's become a, a topic of debate. There are those who say lordship of Christ doesn't matter. There are others that say the lordship of Christ is everything. Just make it known. Peter is declaring clearly the lordship of Christ. The position that I believe we take scripturally is that Jesus Christ is Lord. This lordship uh, he is Lord now. He's enthroned, he's exalted at the right hand, and he is exercising dominion even at this very moment. Jesus entered into this lordship by the very virtue or the very fact of his exaltation. The fact that he's exalted to the right hand of the Father is the very proof that he is exercising his lordship. Listen to what Paul said in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. These will be familiar verses to, to those that are in the Word. These aren't new verses. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Salvation is found in confessing Jesus as both Lord and Christ. Paul writing in Romans 10 verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So even the very confession of our salvation is found in confessing Jesus Christ both as Lord and Christ. 
third heading tonight is verses 37 through 41. When Peter had finished preaching, those whose heart had been, the Bible uses the word pricked by the word of God, cried, what shall we do? When Peter had finished preaching, those whose hearts had been pricked by the word of God cried, what shall we do? Brethren, what we see here in verses 37 through 41 is we see through the inspired word a picture of God's method of grace. First of all, salvation is the work of God alone. Now, I'm not stating anything new to most of you. But it's beneficial for us to be reminded often that salvation is the work of God alone. It was not Peter's eloquence that pricked the heart of these people. Look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Again, Peter spoke, but what was he speaking? He was speaking the word of God. It was not Peter's ability to uh, expositionally put together a sermon. They were pricked in the heart by the Spirit of God. Like every single person who's been awakened to their sense of sin, every single person who's been awakened to the reality of their sin and that God's just wrath against them Notice how they responded. They wanted to know what can we do to escape this wrath? What can we do to ensure that we are in fact a part of this? Now, understand something. The question seems uh, sincere. But there's also on the other side of this, and I don't think we can overlook this, these men thought or maybe better stated, they hoped that they could do something to be saved. What shall we do? The reality is there was nothing they could do. The reality is there was nothing that they could do to appease the just wrath of God. But what had happened? Their hearts had been pricked. These men wanted to know what could they possibly do to make up for the sins that they had committed specifically with regard to the crucifying of Jesus Christ. These men that are hearing this were those men who were a part of this process of taking Jesus and crucifying him. They are trying every way they can to find a way to appease the wrath of God. They're trying to win God's favor. What shall we do? Now again, the question seems sincere, but the question also in some sense is a foolish question. It's like the rich young ruler, what can I do or what must I do? Salvation, again, secondly, first of all, salvation is a work of God alone. Secondly, salvation does not come by something man does. Salvation does not come by something that man does. So if man doesn't do it, what was Peter stating? Now look at verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. 
What Peter's declaring here to them is certainly there is nothing that they could do, but rather salvation is the result of what God does. In Titus 3, verses 5 through 7, Paul states it this way of inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Okay, and it's not, it's not what we have done. It's not what we've offered. It's not what potential that is in us. But according to his mercy, he saved us. It's about as clear as you can put it. Not by works, not a single work, not a hundred works, not a thousand works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What Peter was proclaiming here was that it was not found in what they could do, but it was rather found as a result of what God had done. Verse 39, Peter says, For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. What a blessing it is that Peter says that this is for all that will hear, all that God calls. Factually, we can say this, the hearers of Peter were both convinced and convicted. It's what it means to be pricked to the heart. They were cut to the heart. Some translations put it that way. The, the Greek puts it that way. Cut to the heart. By the realization that what Peter was saying applied to them. We had, in fact, put to death God's Messiah. We had, in fact, in the prophetic words of David, crucified the Lord of glory. So they are asking, what can we do to be delivered from the awful guilt and the weight that we're feeling? Interestingly enough, Peter doesn't say that you at this point are hopeless. No, he explains that God's mercy, and I don't think I, we cannot miss this, God's mercy could forgive even this sin. Imagine be hearing those words, the great sin and the weight and the guilt that these hearers were hearing, and Peter says, even this sin, repent. Again, think about how we kind of catalog sin and we say this sin can't be forgiven or surely that person cannot be forgiven for their sin. Here were those that had crucified the Lord of glory and Peter says, repent, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Notice how that is a free offer of the gospel that goes out. He doesn't say this is for you and you and you, and it's not for you and you and you. He says every one of you that will repent, repent. To repent means to turn. It means to have a right view of your sinful way. It is to confess faith in Jesus as this Messiah. Now let's clarify one thing. He is not saying that baptism is part of salvation. 
Baptism is being mentioned here as the evidence of this repentant spirit. He's also, uh, this result would be that their sins have already been forgiven. And the reception of the Holy Spirit is not dependent upon baptism, but it is this outward sign of a repentant spirit. Now in the early church, and we'll talk a little bit about this next week, uh, new converts, those who truly were, came to saving faith, they were baptized without any delay at all. It was instantaneous. They were baptized immediately. But Peter explains here that this promise is unto you. Now remember, there were a lot of Jewish hearers there. There were a lot of Jewish hearers who had since rejected the Christ. They were part of the groups that had yelled, crucify him. And here Peter is explaining to them that even you, leaders and prophets and priests and kings, no matter who you are, all who would repent would be saved. And they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter goes on and says, and with many other words that he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. What Peter is exhorting his hearers to do is to remove themselves from this crooked generation. What had that crooked generation done? Yes, according to the definite foreknowledge of God, had put Jesus to death. But yet here, Peter, this free offer of the gospel, the command to repent, to believe that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. Now we see that this turns into a marvelous harvest of people. We'll look at this more in depth next week. But look at verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word, were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people came to know Christ. Through this sermon, many of them had still, could probably even sense and feel the blood of Jesus on their hands. And yet here's 3,000 souls whose souls are saved. They were added, we'll look at more of this next week, they were added into the fellowship. The next few verses from verses 41 down through verse 47 gives us this beautiful picture of this primitive church, this fellowship and the continuing in the apostles' doctrine and how remarkable this is. These hearers that Peter was declaring, you crucified the Lord of glory and yet 3,000 souls were added to the church. There are three facts tonight that every person must face. First of all, the Christ whom we all crucified is now the exalted King of heaven and of earth. Secondly, sooner or later, we must all bow to and acknowledge the dominion and lordship of Jesus Christ. Bible says that is the case. 
Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And thirdly, salvation does not come by what man does, but rather the only way of salvation for all men is to repent and to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both Lord and Christ. There have been great sermons preached throughout the history of the world. There have been great sermons preached in the churches. There's been great sermons preached. Jesus himself, of course, the preacher of the greatest sermons. But yet this sermon, this, this Pentecostal sermon, this sermon of the sovereign Christ and the declaration that Peter makes here is a declaration that was not just for that generation, but a generation for all. Jesus Christ, the same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. That is the gospel that we preach. That is the Messiah that we preach. It has always been Jesus. Next week, we'll look again at these, this, this beauty of this church, not only functioning together, but fellowshipping one with another, having things in common, continuing daily with one accord. It's a beautiful picture of what happened. Here are these individuals who, blood, who the blood of Jesus is on their hands and yet they're added to the fellowship. What a joy and what a picture that this is. Amen. Well, let's pray together and then we'll sing our closing hymn.